and welcome to Interdisciplinary, the podcast where we say the quiet parts loud and sometimes the loud parts quiet. This is Healwell's Healthcare Podcast. Uh, I'm Carrie Jordan, and we are so glad that you're here with us. Uh, I am joined today by Rebecca Sturgeon and by one of our favorite recurring guests, Anne Kellerman. Uh, and Anne is such a pro at being an interdisciplinary guest that Anne has arrived with a pun. And so I am going to punt it to you, Anne. Okay. So because we are talking about intimacy and sexuality today, what do you call an iguana that has intimacy issues? What? A reptile dysfunction. <laughs> oh, oh, God. Yay! <laughs> I was putting together my slot. I was putting together my material and I was like, I have to find an intimacy pun that's clean, you know, not too like, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't have to be clean. I well, well done. Yes. Well done. Well punned. Yes. <laughs> so, um, as you said, Anne, we're talking about intimacy and sexuality and um, all kinds of things today. So, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your. Um, connection to this topic and the kind of work that you have done in this area. Yeah, so I think I'll start if it's okay with two, like any good social worker, I'll start with two stories. And one goes back to when I was a social work intern and I worked in a nursing home. And I mean, where does where are people most afraid to talk about sex is with probably old people. And that's, you know, one of our bias. And so I remember I was sitting on rounds. It was one of my first days there. And I didn't, and the social worker I was with said, we're going to go to rounds where we discuss what, what happened overnight. And it's a sign out. And there was this nurse who had been a nurse for 40 years. And she was just reporting that there, she said there's, um, you know, Miss, I don't, I don't remember her name, you know, she was nine, 90 years old and she was reporting some digging in her, she kept digging at her vagina last night. I'm worried that it's dry and we're sitting around the table. And what do you think happened? People start snickering. Yeah, people started, exactly. So people started giggling and I was just kind of looking around and then she just slams her hand down on the table and she goes, vagina, vagina, vagina. We are healthcare professionals, people. If you are not comfortable with somebody saying vagina, get comfortable. And I just remember being like, oh, I'm sitting like very straight up. And I was like, okay, I'm going to get comfortable with saying vagina. Like that's what I learned on my first day in the nursing home. <laughs> so that was sort of, you know, my, my first story. And then just kind of like, we talked about it like later with the social worker I was working with. Well, why are people so uncomfortable with that? Like there was really nothing about like, you know, sexual intercourse. It was just, she was having a, really a medical issue. And that's how like uncomfortable I, we are with this. She was having a medical issue that she needed attention to for whoever the nurse was signing out. And there was all this giggling. It was really interesting. So that's initially what got me started on this. And then um, shortly after that, when I had my first palliative care job, I was caring for a young patient who was in his early 20s, and he had metastatic uh, colon cancer. And we were rounding, and I said to the physician at the time when we left his room, you know, he was there with his, his wife, and I said, you know, I wonder how this has impacted their sex life. Like, I just wonder, and like almost immediately, the physician I worked with was like, I doubt he's thinking of that. I mean, he's so sick. And I kind of did an override, you know, I learned now what I call an override, like I didn't trust my instincts. I was, you know, um, early in my social work career. And many months later, his wife called and she said, you know, there's something that I really have wanted to ask you and um, the doctor I worked with at the time about. 
and you know we we really want to have a child and we've really been struggling and it's been so hard because he has these colostomy bags and we just I just he's so embarrassed to bring it up and nobody has ever brought it up with us and I felt terrible like I just had this sense of like you know how you do that like shame thing like you're such a bad social worker you're such a bad massage therapist why didn't you you know and I thought back to that time so that's really what triggered me to start the first pilot study that I did. I was just like, I'm going to ask everyone. And that was right around the time I was coming to the hospital center where I work now. And I was like, I'm just going to ask everyone. And even the physician I worked with here, he was, who was supportive to that said, I don't know, like, are people really going to want to talk about this? Like, I think that's a good idea. Like, why not add this as part of our palliative care assessment? We talk about quality of life but I really wasn't trained on how to have this discussion. So I just decided I was gonna lean into my, to being uncomfortable. And I was seeing a lot of heart failure patients at the time. And I just incorporated a question about how has this impacted your relationships? And then that often led to somebody talking about a partner. Well, you know, sometimes, and sometimes it was just other issues, right? Like, you know, well, I feel bad because I'm such a burden to my wife because she has to take me to all these appointments. And then we would talk through that. And then I said, well, how has this impacted intimacy? So I would often ask the relationship question first, then go into the intimacy question. And guess what I found out? People are dying to talk about this. Exactly. <laughs> There's another pun. There you go. <laughs> um, and, and they really were. And, and then just hearing stories of how I, I didn't know how to bring up this to my providers um, or some people who did bring it up to physicians that they trusted, but then were, you know, were often dismissed. Um, you know, don't worry about that. You know, focus on getting through chemotherapy or don't worry about that. Focus on, you know, physically feeling better. And so that's what led into the initial study that we did where I really just started asking everybody and track that. And the themes that emerged from that were, you know, nobody's asking me. Um, most people want to talk about it. And there's other issues that come up outside of just like sexual, you know, intercourse. There's, or, you know, there's, there was so much that came up around, you know, the broader definition of intimacy and how we are close with people. But then, you know, um, family members maybe were just afraid to touch you because they they thought you you know they the perception that you're always in pain or they weren't sure to do uh, what to do with drains that you may have. You know, this is I was making a that face I was making while you were talking was because I was thinking about our last episode of the podcast was about like assumptions that that we make that affect the quality of healthcare and. I, you know, when, when physicians or other health providers are saying, you know, don't think about that, focus on feeling better. Yes. Isn't having health and healthy intimacy a part of feeling better? I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's a part of it. Um, but I think people feel helpless because then they're like, well, what am I going to do? Like outside of, you know, then it gets very medical okay, well, are you having, you know, erectile dysfunction? Then like I can, there's like a pill or, you know, um, or a cream or, you know, something. And it's not about really the, I think what's lacking in the studies is the psychosocial aspect of this. And a lot of the review studies that are out there talk about really, we can't also fix in palliative care. We can't fix the fact that people are dying and, but we can show up and we can offer a space to have that conversation of, 
this sounds really hard that like you're not able to like pick up your grandkids anymore or like your child isn't able to like sit on your lap because you know you have all this swelling or you know what that might be but I think it's still really you know what I learned too it was really hard for providers um, and sometimes I would be with my palliative care colleagues or we would be having a conversation or other oh like I'm just like I don't want to be there when you have that conversation or when you ask this pay, you know, cause I don't feel like there's anything we can do and that. And that's sort of disheartening because there really is always something you can do. And I think if there's one takeaway of all the people I've ever asked, there was only one patient who said that's too personal. I don't want to talk about that. There was really, and, and then, okay, but you, you at least allow that to be out there. And there's plenty of people when we're talking about end of life, where they're like, I don't want to talk about that. You know, I don't want to talk about my advanced directive or I don't want to talk about the, you know, my preferred place of death. And so it's interesting that there's such a stigma around this that we don't want to talk about it. I'm really interested in the, we talk a lot about the sort of impulse for healthcare providers to be fixers yeah. and the, and the expectation. And, and I think that certainly while a lot of it is imagined, I do wonder how much does come from patients. And so when you had these conversations with patients, did you find that patients and families wanted you to do something about it? Or did you find that really they just wanted to say, this is part of what's hard about this? Really? They just, they just wanted somebody to open up that conversation, you know, and because they didn't to allow, you know, that Sometimes people did need like maybe a referral, um, but most of the time it was just to be able to facilitate that conversation. Or I don't know how to talk to you know uh, my partner about this. Um, I worry that you know you know things have changed so much with our intimate you know with our um, with intimacy, and I don't know how to have that conversation. And then helping with language around that. But uh, you know I would say less. I would say it was a lower percentage that actually needed, you know, like a referral or something to be fixed. Now, I think that's so interesting that just the, just the having of the conversation is so important. And I wonder if this is something, um, if you have any thoughts about it, if, do you think that this is something that is particularly suppressed in healthcare or is healthcare kind of mirroring a larger cultural moment or, um, yeah. Yeah, it might be a little, I feel like it might be a little bit of both. I think you definitely have to get in touch with what your own biases are. And when I have done this talk before, we kind of, we got, we've gone around the room. So I'm curious, like, we'll talk about different disciplines. Like what was I taught in social work school? I was taught nothing. I mean, I was taught like to um, be mindful of, you know, sexual, of course, we were taught a lot about sexual abuse and screening for sexual abuse and how to refer to child protective services, but I wasn't taught anything in my palliative care training, certainly on how to have this. I'm wondering what you learn in massage school. I have some assumptions. So, <laughs> so funny that you should ask because we've been railing in many episodes about exactly this. I mean, you know, this is a really interesting topic to me as a massage therapist because massage therapy and sex are so weirdly intertwined and massage therapists hate that. Um, but you know, my job is for you to, you're a stranger. You call me, you say, can I 
come take off my clothes and have you be sweet to my naked body. And I say, yeah, that'll be 90 bucks. How's Thursday at four? Right. (laughs) And I'll stay clothed (laughs) and you'll be face down. Like, don't worry, there's nothing weird about my job. Um, And so I think that our massage therapy education spends a lot of time from coming from a place of fear about sex, about people who are going to want something that's not massage and this is how you handle it. And if somebody has an erection on the table, you know, this massage is over. And, you know, we, we, it, it all comes from such a place of fear and it really ignores that it is completely foreign in our culture to get naked with somebody and be touched sweetly and sensually yeah. and have it not be about sex. And I, I certainly in, in my career, especially since I have done a lot of work with people who are very ill or at end of life, like I was often the only person in their life touching them and certainly touching them naked, right. In that way yeah. that, that wasn't, except for maybe their CNA or their provider who was like cleaning them, you know, <laughs> um, I, I was the only person who was touching them for the sake of touching them. And mm-hmm. I, I think that we, we really don't appreciate the power of that. And we're certainly not trained how to use that well, <laughs> how to use that power well, and how to use that because sometimes it is important to just be touched and that that intimacy counts as part of intimacy. Um, and I wonder about that in other medical providers when, when I am in the hospital and I see the way other healthcare providers handle people's bodies you know, even if they're, you know, if they're checking for wound healing or they're going to take blood or they're going to just help reposition this person. I always notice like some providers are really good at handling the body in a loving way and others are real bad at it. And Mm -hmm. I, I wonder if that is about, again, like there is something kind of intimate about handling a limb slowly or gently that it feels different than a sort of medical intervention. Yeah. Yeah. And I have certainly seen that too. Right. And, and I remember a patient saying to me, when I talked about intimacy, she was like, nobody ever touches me anymore. Like who would want to touch me? And, you know, and it was just incredibly sad. I couldn't, again, I couldn't do anything to fix that. You know, I reached over and held her hand, but it was a moment where like we were talking about that and nobody had asked her. And then it was just this, yeah, like realization too, for me that, yeah, nobody, and certainly seeing how I have, um, when I've had patients say that to me, like, they're so rough with me here. And like, I'm a tiny woman and like, they come in and they clean me up and I've been having this diarrhea and they're, they're just so rough. And there's, you know, certain people who aren't as rough, but you know that, and I, 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 I don't know, sort of, um, cause I have then certainly witnessed people who are very gentle. Um, and ex, you know, even just explaining, um, is it, or asking permission, is it okay if I t- hold your hand? Is it okay if, you know, I have to clean you up. And sometimes that just doesn't exist within this medical, you know, hospital system. Yeah, that's interesting because it's I'm not in a hospital as much as at all. 
<laughs> really. Um, and no, it's interesting how a body that is ill or weak or medically frail suddenly becomes a, a body that is outside the possibility of pleasure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and I think we see this in the disability community too. You know, mm-hmm. um, we've, we've certainly talked to uh, people who are active activists in the disability community who talk about like the people's discomfort with the idea of a disabled person as a sexual being. And I think that that is true about old people. I think that's true about sick people. I think that we have such a, a, a narrow cultural acceptability of who can be sexy. Or yeah, can true about walk. obese people. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. So many, yeah. yeah. Well, and again, I, I just wonder, like, you know, you know, I'm thinking now what you were talking about with training and that like, I, I mean, who, what medical provider, I mean, urologists, who gets, tra- who gets trained about having yeah. these, com- these conversations or even about wondering or worrying about. Yeah. Um, and I think they're it. trained. Yeah. They're trained to really. And so, uh, cause I've talked with some of our fellows who've like come through here when we when I um, was doing some of these studies and it's often like, do you have sex with men, women, or both? Like, that's the question. Like, that's it. Like, that's how, and a couple of the review studies go over, you know, because there's such a lack of training, they go over a lot of mnemonics and how to do this, but that kind of stresses me out too, because I'm what, one of them is alarm activity, libido, arousal, resolution, medical information, <laughs> And then I'm like, that's just too much for me to remember, like the five A's. And I'm like, why do we always also have to do this within medicine to like remember things? And I think if there's any takeaway, it's as simple as asking, like, how has your illness affected your relationships? And that really is a question like, and some of the articles do talk about, you know, just asking open-ended questions. And that really can lead into besides, you know, for, you know, another question and what I've heard from patients is, you know, oh, when I was going to get my LVAD, the only question around intimacy was basically like, don't get pregnant and we have to put you on birth control. (laughs) So, um, yeah. And let's be clear, having an LVAD would seriously, like, you'd have to change how you have sex, right? Yeah. Yes. I mean, this is <laughs> physically, yeah. you would have to do things differently. Yeah. 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 And I did this talk once for a group of uh, heart failure patients. And there was a guy in the audience who, um, who, who then, uh, who said that um, was kind of giving tips. He's like, yeah, nobody talked to me about this. And I, my wife and I had to figure it out. And then he, he was talking about, I think it's myelvad.com that has a lot of resources and where you could go in there and then find other patients. Like they sort of form this own community there, which is great. But that was also sort of a deficit that they weren't getting this from providers who care for them for years of asking around it, or even just having discussions prior to the surgery. I read an article written by um, a, 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 a man who was a soldier and he had uh, lost um, part of his arm and his leg from the knee down um, in a, an explosion. And he talked in this article about, again, like he, he and his partner had to like physically figure out how to 
be intimate again. And he talked about how frustrating it was that like, there were no resources and certainly no one talked to him about this. And he is, he was in his twenties, you know, it was a young guy (laughs) um, who was married and, and, and that this, it does seem like, you know, when he said it, it seemed like, well, duh, of course there should be, but I can also see that there are so many other major life changes that you would imagine would happen if you lost a limb or two. Um, I, I guess I can see how we would forget as providers to talk about that? I think people just get so focused on the medical aspect of things. And a lot of the literature just talks about how patients didn't like, didn't want to bring it up, but wanted to talk about it. So like, you know, we have to figure out a way to incorporate this into our assessments, especially in palliative care, when we talk so much about quality of life. I think you said that at the beginning of the podcast, well, why are we so uncomfortable with this aspect of quality of life? Um, and there's not, you know, there's not a lot of literature around this, but but pretty much everything says the same thing. We don't talk about this. Patients want to talk about this. Uh, we need to incorporate this into, you know, assessments. I was going to say this is just sort of a funny story of how uncomfortable we are. There was a um, patient I was seeing in the hospital, and I asked her that question, and she goes, "Oh, she goes, you know." I went to see my primary care doctor and she was like, are you active? And the patient's like, yeah, I, you know, go for walks. I really like walking. And sometimes I walk through the park and then she's like, no, are you active? And then like, <laughs> and then she goes again, well, yeah, I told just told you I walk 30 minutes every day. <laughs> and this is like an elderly, you know, an, an elderly woman who has heart failure. And, and then she goes, I mean, why didn't you see, why didn't she just say, are you having sex? And we just laughed about it. And I, you know, and I said, because people are, you know, people are uncomfortable. She's like, I mean, I would have told her, sure, you know, and and that wasn't, you know, a way for, it was just like a story of how uncomfortable we are, but it was just so funny. She, when I asked her about relationships and intimacy and she was like, you know, that's very clear. (laughs) Oh my God, I love that story. That's well, that, that's almost related to what I was going to say, because I'm, I'm, no, I'm thinking about like how um, how awkward it is for some people to actually say, are you having sex or to have those conversations or to have conversations about, um, you know, different resources or ways that you need to change the way you approach sex with your partner. Um, and, and it made me think of a world in which physicians also had as referral sources like sex workers or um like the best sex education i ever encountered was the people who worked at a local toy store in chicago who um you know would have classes about how to do different different sex acts partner and that that like why is that not also a patient resource yeah yeah. And there are like, um, you know, you can refer to like specialists, but then again, it's, it's so hard too, because like for somebody who's sick, like, do they want to, like, are they able to get out to see like us, you know, a urologist that might specialize in this? Um, does that person take insurance? And so then it just creates like more barriers. And um, I wonder there, you know, and there may be some things that people can do virtually now that certainly has 
open, the pandemic has opened a lot of options where people are doing more telehealth visits. So I see that as a positive thing. Yeah, and that makes me think of, I, I, I think you and I, Anne, were both at a talk that a doctor who is local here, a urologist named uh, Dr. Rachel Rubin gave. And one of the things that really impressed me about her talk was that she talked a lot about how when she has a patient who, uh, particularly male, if she has a male patient who's having erectile dysfunction, that before she prescribes anything, she has a meeting with the partner as the, with the patient and their partner. Um, and, you know, one of the things she talked about is like, if the, if their partner is a woman and they're having erectile, the, the male patient is having erectile dysfunction because of aging, chances are good. Their partner is of the same age and mm -hmm. women have vaginal dryness at that. And so if your partner suddenly doesn't have erectile dysfunction anymore, but you still have vaginal dryness it's not really awesome for anybody. Yeah. <laughs> and that, and that I, I really was impressed that, you know, as a urologist, a, a medical professional who has this um, pharmaceutical medical intervention to fix this problem, she was still thinking about like this as, in terms of intimacy and not in terms of as this is a, this is an illness and here's the cure for this illness, right? That really, this is about relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I know she also talked about how, so she, I, she's a urologist and then did a specialization in sexual medicine, I think. And I remember her saying that she was one of only two women who completed that or something. Yes, I, yes. That just blew my mind. I was like, what? Like talk about gender, you know, I'm glad she's local. Like yeah. it's nice that she's local here. And yeah, it was really like, that was a great talk. So Anne, will you talk about a little bit more about the studies that you did, because these yeah. are, these are not like, um, quantitative studies. I imagine yeah. the most recent one we did, um, we was 21 and we did 21 interviews where we had a medical student who was interested in this a couple of years ago. And so I did the first, like we went together and we had a series of questions that we would ask often around like relationships, intimacies, you know, and then just really talked and recorded them. They were transcribed and then coded. And so some of the themes that emerged from there were, you know, physical and mental effects of illness, like patients reported a variety, you know, of physical effects from their illness, you know, often from treatment, but really the most um, common theme was limitations the limitations um, on their activities of daily living and the continual sort of decline in that over time and how hard that was. And again, not necessarily exactly, you know, some related exactly to sexual intercourse, but then just feeling like a burden to their family, um, you know, romantic and sexual relationships. So, you know, talking again about how providers were not comfortable bringing this up, that nobody was asking them about this, but that, um, you know, there was a huge kind of social stigma to that. Um, and I'm trying to figure, I'm trying, let me look for this one quote that I really liked. Um, oh, and just also like explaining, um, you know, no one had really even brought up the term intimacy. So doing some education with patients and when they're like, well, what do you mean intimacy? And then like talking through that, well, what does intimacy mean to you? And really just, again, noting how, um, little we talk about this. I think the other theme was what was really interesting is almost everybody in the study talked about their faith 
and their faith as a primary coping mechanism when they felt helpless around this. That's so interesting. Yeah. You know, really just talking about um, uh, how in the face of not being able to have an intimate relationship with their partner, how they drew, drew closer to God. So that was one of the important themes, which was not a theme of, of the earlier studies that we did. So I thought that was really interesting. And um, I was thinking sort of towards like the next study, you know, this study just talked to patients and did interviews with patients. And there was one small study that I reviewed in the literature that interviewed not only patients, but their caregiver. And I think that would be really interesting to do within a, you know, within a palliative care population of not only interviewing the patient, but interviewing their, um, their partner too. Yeah. As a massage therapist, I definitely see that a lot of the kind of work that we do at HealWell and that I did in my practice was working with the caregiver and the patient and sort of teaching the caregiver how to do massage. Because again, what we were doing, it wasn't complicated techniques. It was nine out of 10 times. It was like the caregiver just felt like they needed permission or they were, again, as you said, afraid of hurting their person or afraid of like, you know, and, and that there's, um, there's a great program that William Collins and Tracy Walton developed years ago called um, Touch Caring and Cancer, where they they did a they created a video and did these workshops for um, people with advanced cancer and their and like some of them were romantic partners, some of them were like siblings, so a caregiver and a patient, and they taught them how to how to do sort of massage for for the body, and in the interviews some of the the responses that came out from the caregivers, it was really interesting and powerful to me was that it really empowered the caregiver because you feel so helpless in the face mm -hmm. of illness and pain that your person is experiencing that even if you can't, this isn't fixing anything, but it's a thing you can do and a way that you can connect to this person. Um, and so I think you're right. I think that would be a really interesting study. I wonder also, aside from anecdotally asking your colleagues and us, like, do you plan to do, or have, have there been studies asking providers about this and about their discomfort or resistance to these conversations? Just no, I don't, I couldn't find like the most recent literature is mostly and a lot of the intimacy stuff has been done in the cancer population and GYN cancer, which is very important, but I think it lacks sort of like think about dementia and a lot of other illnesses and so many losses that can, that a caregiver can experience over maybe a decade of caring for somebody with dementia. Um, and I, so I, but I do think that would be great to survey or to study why providers are so uncomfortable. When I've done this talk before, we kind of just go around the room. Like I asked you what you learned in massage school and talk about what did you learn when you were in NP school? What did you learn? You know, and a lot of it is around like making sure people are using condoms or like education around STDs. And, um, but also a lot of, well, I don't know how to talk to this about patients. I feel uncomfortable. And it would be interesting to do a study around that and like a qualitative study for providers, but then also working on doing some trainings, like figuring out like, I don't know who would host that, but you know, a way that you could host, okay, you're uncomfortable. Here's an idea for here. Well, you know, you're uncomfortable. <laughs> and how do we as an interdisciplinary team work together to have these discussions? 
And it's, you know, there's some aspects that social work and chaplain can do, but then there's limits and maybe I need to, you know, bring in my other interdisciplinary colleagues. Do you feel like this is a place where your colleagues kind of, um, I, th I think you sort of answered this earlier, but where they're like, you do that. Yeah, sometimes <laughs> when, I was doing, when I was doing the first pilot study, one of our physicians here, we were seeing this woman who was like an elderly black woman. She was deeply religious. She had had this whole conversation the other day when we were at the bedside um, with uh, a nurse. And she said, I just feel so blessed. He's not living. He's not. Um, he was engaged, I guess. And she's like, he's not living with his partner and they're engaged or something. So had this whole conversation. And he was like, please do not ask her about intimacy or sex. And I was like, why are you so uncomfortable? He's like, if you do, I just don't want to be there. <laughs> but then I did. And we had a really great conversation around like, she's like, well, I, you know, I haven't had a partner in a long time. And, um, but I do, you know, I, I you know, and it was, and it was a loss. Right. So then that mm -hmm. was a loss of how, and I, I think, you know, and we talked about that loss uh, amongst many other losses that she had with that came with illness. And I also think it um, it highlighted for me, you know, sometimes really learning about another important person in this patient's life was very valuable. Not somebody that they wanted to make medical decisions for, but really somebody that, yeah, I, you know, I I do have, a, you know, I do have somebody that I'm intimate with, and this person's very meaningful to me. I don't know how to talk to them about what's going on. And it's, you know, it wasn't somebody, though, the standard questions we ask, like, if you couldn't make your own medical decisions, who would make those for you? But it was really somebody that, and, and that was really helpful to know, especially patients that we followed for a longer time. Well, I'm, I'm curious what, um, because you just, you and uh, your colleague, Terry, I'll tell you, did, did this, just did this course for us um, called The Power of Our Words, which we also talked about last week on the podcast. Um, but I'm, I'm curious about what you would, um, if you have any like specific language recommendations um, around intimacy and talking about intimacy or things that you found that are useful. I mean, I, you talked earlier about asking about relationship and leading, having that lead into the question about intimacy. Um, but are there, are there other, um, things that you wish providers know or would say better <laughs> or differently? Yeah, I think, um, I think probably the biggest thing that comes to my mind is, is noting when you get uncomfortable and then leaning into that. Because so a lot of patients will say, yeah, I asked my doctor about this and then they were dismissive. And then it just like ends the conversation. But like really just asking a series of open ending questions and then stop talking. <laughs> And if you're uncomfortable, just stop talking or even a statement of, well, tell me more about that. That seems so hard. That seems really hard. Um, you know, there's, it depends on kind of where the conversation goes, if it's around, or it sounds like that was a big loss. Um, I'm trying to think of other things that have come up. Because I think when we ask these questions of like, do you have sex with men, women, or both? And then are, do you, are you using protection? Do you have a history of it? It's so, it just doesn't allow for expansion rather than just asking about, well, what, what else is, has been difficult? I wonder too about our own, as providers, our own implicit bias that we may not be aware of that like 
the way I have sex is the way everybody has sex. Yeah. So certainly, I mean, I, uh, you know, my partner was assigned female at birth and is non-binary. So when my doctor asks me, do you have sex with men, women, or both? I'm like, neither. (laughs) Yes. Like all of them. Yeah. Uh, And so, and so I think that that's, again, I know that people get kind of cranky about the semantics, but the provider I have now asked me when I first saw her, do you have sex with a sperm producing partner? And I was like, that's an awesome question. Cause you're asking me about pregnancy. That's actually what you want to know. Right. And so sperm producing partner is what that's you want to know. That's a great question. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> um, but I, I also think, you know, I, 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 I think I wonder about how we're limited by not that we don't realize that we can't really imagine, like even just what, what does sex, what does intercourse even mean for you? Is that what I'm imagining? Does it look really different for you and your partner? You know, mm-hmm. you know, are, are you active, like hanging upside down from a swing? <laughs> active, like what, you know, that matters. Right. And so I do, I wonder also about that, that we all have a wall that we don't maybe know we have inside of us of like, this is what sex means. Yeah, that, yeah, that's such a good point. Because when, when you were saying that, it was also making me think um, just, um, oh gosh, now I lost my train of thought. Um, when you were saying that, I was like, wow, that is such a good question. And how many times have you been to a doctor where you were just asked that, you know, and that standard question, then other medical students who are shadowing for a day, they learn to ask that question. And then we are all coming in with our own sort of perception, but rather, um, and I I remember, oh, here's the thought coming back, where um, a woman was asking her doctor, about, you know, she, I think had had breast cancer or something. And she was asking and saying, you know, I'm having some like intimacy issue comes up again, getting dismissed. And then sort of like really judgmental around, well, is your partner even interested in that right now? And there was really no awareness around self-pleasure either. And I think that's like another, that we haven't talked about that. So does it really matter what my partner is interested in? I'm here talking to you. And that's another bias because when I was talking to the patient, I was like, oh yeah, that's right. Like we had this whole conversation about that, so. Well, uh, I wonder what else is out there. What what are uh, other things that you wanna make sure that we know or try to do in our own practices? I think, I think the biggest takeaway in all of the, you know, all of the literature around, like most of the literature around uh, serious illness and intimacy is that there's nothing out there. There's not a lot published. And that's true. There's starting to be more studies over the last few years that I've seen that um, in usually a very small patient population um, interviews, interviews of partners. But the, the biggest takeaway is that most patients want a space just to, to talk about this. So if nothing else, finding the, and finding the question that's authentic to you, I start with relationships and go from there. That might not work for you. There are those models that I had shared earlier, like the four A's. Um, but that just, in my mind, just is one more thing to remember. So I just try to start by having an open conversation and continue to ask open-ended questions. 
Thank you, Anne, for um, sharing this with us today. Um, oh, will we be able to link to your studies in the show notes? Yes. Okay, mm -hmm. perfect. So we'll share those with everyone. And I will uh, tell you, listeners, you get the super secret first sneak <laughs> save the date. Um, September 24th, um, we at Healwell are going to host a, an online symposium called Healthcare and Intimacy. And Ann Kellerman is the keynote speaker. So mark it in your calendars and Yay. keep your eyes open for more information coming soon. Yes. I'm so excited. Yes, yeah, that's going to be really really much needed discussion in that area. Um, so thank you again for listening. We will be continuing this and many other good conversations in the Healwell community, community.healwell.org. You can find Ann Kellerman's class, The Power of Our Words, um, as well as um, Ann's collaborated with us on that class, also on a class called um, To Chart or Not to Chart. Um, mm -hmm. And anti-racism for healthcare providers. So you get lots of good Ann Kellerman wisdom at online.pol.org. Um, and if you have not already, come and check out our Patreon where we are bringing all the silly super secret squirrel things um, at patreon.com slash interdisciplinary. Um, Amazing stuff for as little as $1 a month, plus a sticker. Yes, yes. Come for the sticker, stay for the silly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and we would love to hear your thoughts, like actually hear your thoughts if you want to send us a voice memo or, you know, uh, read your thoughts if you want to send us words at podcast.healwell.org. Um, and thank you for listening. Interdisciplinary is produced by Healwell. Our theme music is by Harry Pickens. New episodes are available weekly through your favorite podcast outlet. Uh, and you can send us an email at podcast at healwell.org. That's podcast at healwell.org. Thanks for listening.